Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. If you love the information that you get in the Puberty Podcast, but you only have 30 or 60 seconds, we have something amazing for you. If you're already on TikTok, follow us at Spilling the Puberty. And if you're not on TikTok, this is your opportunity to get on TikTok, follow Spilling the Puberty, get some good information and also have some funny stuff to send to your kids to start the conversation. We're very funny. Sometimes. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll-Bennett. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Cara. I'm very excited to talk about sex education, not the show. Although we can talk about that too. I can't imagine why you're excited to talk about sex education. We never talk about this stuff. It's so new and different. Well, let's let's share some stories to open up that um, maybe some of our listeners don't know. Like, here's a question for you. Have you, being a puberty educator, ever taught in a classroom where your child is sitting in one of the seats? So I have had a child in one of the seats many, many times over. She is my best critic and is an interesting receiver of information, partially because she gives me lots of feedback and is pretty joyful about the whole thing. The interesting thing is when I did a private session 
about puberty from two of my boys. And we did a press with your two boys, just with two of my boys at the kitchen table. And I took out my big 3M pad and I went through all of the biological female anatomy. Vanessa has a 3M pad that's about four feet by six feet, <laughs> just, just to give the visual. She pulls out an easel. She has like this massive canvas on which she begins to draw. Okay. It's my, it's my best accessory. Forget about handbags. It's my best accessory. So I've done it with a kid in a group, in a workshop talking about puberty. And then I've done it privately with my two of my kids talking about female puberty. So I have run the gamut. I have never had... Oh, that's not true. I also had one of my kids on Zoom in a workshop and he was the kid who tilted his camera so that you could only see the very top (laughs) of his head. But then he gave me really constructive feedback afterwards. He gave me a nine out of 10 which I was... I would call that constructive. Yeah, that I was excellent. I was very... He, my, his one piece of advice was that I didn't get everyone in the group participating as much as he would have liked. Which is hard on Zoom. I'll tell you my experience. I, I think I rounded out. So my experience was I, for many years, was the actual in the classroom. Um, we didn't call it sex ed in the school where I taught. We called it growth ed. That was the name I came up with that I thought was really great branding. The kids renamed it Gross Ed, just to be very clear, they did not love my branding. Awesome. But I was the teacher for probably a decade in this one school. I actually taught here and there at different schools, but this one school, I was a teacher for about a decade. And as the decade wore on, my daughter started to see her time coming when she was going to be in my classroom. And this was... This was not something she looked forward to at all. And um, much like your Zoom child who only showed his forehead in the fourth grade when the curriculum began, my daughter was under her desk. She was literally literally under her desk. But the best part was I knew all the kids in the class and they were so super into it because they knew me and they all felt like they could ask their questions and talk to me. And there was exactly one person in the room who was completely horrified by the situation. And that would be my, my offspring. But, um, but <laughs> the good news is that I thought it would be a wonderful college essay topic. You know, mm. like what challenge have you survived? Um, I survived my mother teaching me sex ed for three years, um, which she did. She, she passed on that. She took the pass. She's like, I'm carrying enough baggage about that. I don't want to write about it. Although I will tell you a close friend of my 16-year-olds pulled up our video for this week's episode, which when we're recording this, it's about the importance of air. And the clip we have is about vaginal discharge. And apparently his friend walked down the hall at school playing the video recording of me talking about vaginal discharge. So the answer is yes, you have been in your child's school physically right. now. Just not yes. just not aware of it until several hours later. It's um, amazing. So you have actually, I mean, you've done this for decades now at this point, yeah. taught sex ed or growth ed or gross ed or human growth and development or puberty education. There's a million bazillion names for it. And I will say that even though the shorthand term is sex ed, I'm not sure it's actually really such an accurate 
term because so much of what we teach has absolutely nothing to do with sex. It has to do with bodies changing. It has to do with relationships and consent and hygiene and all of those things. So we'll get into that in a minute. But Cara, can you just talk about why we're putting this episode out this spring? Like, what is it about this moment in time that makes it worth putting this episode out? Right. So while there's not exactly a sex ed season, if you will, it really does tend to be a class that is taught in the spring, usually sometime in March or April. And um, I think schools are evolving. So schools are starting to teach some of the content year round, which is great. And that's where we need to go with this. But when it comes to schools where there isn't a lot of time or space in the curriculum, or there has been some pushback to the curriculum, I think they grab the window that is most available to them, which is a window in the spring when at least the kids and teachers are connected and bonded and know each other well enough that these conversations can happen in a classroom without too, too much awkwardness. Um, But that brings up the point that often this class is taught by not puberty educators or health educators or sex educators or physicians or nurses or anyone who's in the healthcare field. But often these courses are taught by teachers, teachers who are not super enthusiastic about teaching them, who have been tapped and said, hey, listen, you have a free window for this 45 minutes. Guess what class you get to teach? And that's very, very significant because sex education, puberty education, all sorts of health education is more effective if the person who's teaching it is psyched to be there. Um, In my kids' old school, guess who taught the boys, the middle school boys, their sex education? The head of school. The rabbi. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) And he was actually pretty enthusiastic about it, but the boys were less enthusiastic about receiving that information from him, which is, you know, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed when we work with schools is that the schools actually want to incorporate more of this curriculum into the everyday. They want to start younger. But a lot of these teachers didn't sign up to be sex educators or health educators. They signed up, you know, to teach science or English or whatever. And it's hard for them because there's a lot of work that needs to get done by the adults themselves before they can feel comfortable teaching this. Which teachers tell me, all the time. Yeah. They say, if I had the bandwidth to have the training, I might love to do this, but I don't. I mean, look at how teachers have gotten through COVID and what they have been asked to do over the past couple of years to begin with. And now let's layer on a whole new course. Of course, it's emotionally charged and socially charged. It's complicated. We're not going to talk about the who. We're going to talk more about the what in this episode, because It's very important for parents and the adults who are raising tweens and teens to know what their kids are going to get or not get in the school setting so that parents and other adults can either fill in the holes or get in front of it with a narrative that feels more comfortable to them or at least have an understanding of the framework for the education. Much like math or history, What our kids learn about their bodies in school 
needs to be transparent so that the adults can kind of help the kids process the information. So let's start with a timeline, right? Because we know that there's kind of an average age where schools... Now, I live in New York State and you live in the state of California. So I think we should actually start with some background on how does sex ed, how is it legislated and dictated in this country? How is it mandated or not mandated? And where does that take us? And then we can dive into what's actually being taught. Yeah. So let's pull the lens even further back because we do use this term sex ed. But when you look at the rules around sex ed, they are really around education about sex. And of course, a lot of these courses incorporate much more than sex. And so that's what muddies the waters a little bit in terms of what parents can understand about what is being covered. So let's do sex ed first, the narrower, and then we'll, we'll broaden a little. Sex education, there are standards for what kids can and should learn in school. There are national standards and there are state standards and they are not necessarily in sync. So we are going to put a link in our show notes to the CECUS National Sexuality Education Standards. Those are the federal standards that start at grade two and go through grade 12, covering over 42 pages in great detail exactly what content around sex and sexuality kids are expected to have learned in the school setting, not at home, but in the school setting in every school in America. Those are the federal standards. What we're not going to put in the show notes are the dozens and dozens of links to different state standards. You can look those up on your own. All you need to do is do an internet search for the name of your state and then sex education standards. And you will find a similar document. Sometimes it's thicker and more complicated. Sometimes it's very, very basic. But you can compare what your state requires with what the federal government requires. It is my understanding, and Vanessa, I think this is your understanding too, that when it comes to state sex education mandates, those trump the federal rules. Meaning if you come from a state that has a mandate to teach less than what the federal government has a mandate to teach. It is my understanding that the state then needs to teach less. It does not have to meet the minimum requirement set out by the federal government. I think that's right. I mean, hopefully we will have Jacqueline Friedman on the show from Educate Us, and she's involved in public policy advocacy around sex education. So she can dive into this more, but I believe it is the state mandate that dictates what gets taught in the departments of education in that state. Yeah. And if I've got that wrong, if we've got that wrong and you're a listener who knows more, let us know because this is a constantly shifting landscape. But in terms of sex and what must be taught, there are lots of rules and the rules sometimes conflict. The broader health education piece, also there are federal standards and state standards. Also, they are listed by grade. Most states list general health education requirements down to kindergarten, which is great. So starting in second grade for the sex education curriculum, 
feels a little arbitrary when our public school system begins in kindergarten. So it'd be great to bring those things down. And we'll talk about consent in a moment. And that's a good, a very good example of a place where you can bring down the education to very, very, very young kids. But in terms of broad health education, we want kids learning things like hygiene, why they need to wash their hands, the importance of using soap in the bath or shower, basic, basic nutrition, the importance of hydration, particularly with plain old water. Those types of facts really should be covered beginning in kindergarten, enforced in their science curricula, and also their physical education curricula. And it's easy to weave these things in. Even in preschool, you know, using correct anatomical language for body parts, reinforcing about what's private and what's not private and where we show parts of our bodies and when we don't show parts of our bodies, all sorts of things around boundary. And then the big one, which essentially can start, you know, even with toddlers is the issue of consent. And people always assume, oh, consent, it's about teenagers having sex, but it's not. It's about bodily autonomy from the very beginning. And preschool is the perfect age where kids are all over each other, you know, pulling hair and squeezing bodies and touching items of clothing and helping them understand what someone else's boundaries are and also helping them advocate for themselves about their own boundaries. And developmentally, it's hard, right? There's sometimes kids aren't quite ready to get that, but practicing that language and that conversation about someone else's space, someone else's bubble, as a lot of teachers like to say, is a great way to start so that you're not starting you know, with teenagers when they haven't been learning about that for years. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game-changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer 
is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. 
Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Hi guys, my name is Sarah Nicole and I am the host of the Papaya Podcast, where each week we dish out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom all through candid conversations in a very real and tangible way. I want everyone to know that they're not alone and that we share in these experiences called life. And sometimes when we get to know somebody else's story, it changes ours a little bit as well. So I want you to tune in with us on Mondays, subscribe, rate and review it and keep these conversations going with us. You can tune in behind the scenes at the Papaya Podcast and the Birds Papaya on Instagram as well. Can't wait to see you next week. I'd love for you to give an example for a parent of a younger kid. What would consent teaching look like that has nothing to do with sex? So you have two little kids, right? A kindergartner and a second grader. And the second grader is tickling and tickling and tickling their kindergarten sibling. And the kindergarten sibling is laughing, but also saying, stop, stop, stop. And the second grader keeps doing it. And that's a moment to step in and say something like, hey, kiddo, I know it's confusing because he's laughing and he's asking you to stop. But when someone asks you to stop touching their body, you have to listen immediately and stop touching that person's body. So I didn't freak out. I didn't say, don't you hear your brother saying, stop, get your hands off of him? Because it is confusing. And the second grader is like, oh, well, he's laughing. He's having fun. So it's using those opportunities. The other one that we talk about a lot is when we're going to see family members, grandparents, aunts, uncles, close family friends who maybe grew up in a culture where they expect a hug from children or and or a kiss. And that adult may say, come give me a hug. Don't you love me? If you love me, you'll come give me a hug, either talking about it beforehand or in the moment saying, hey, you know what? Actually, she's just comfortable giving you a high five or a fist bump. So in our house, we let the kids choose what they're comfortable doing. And that's harder, right? It's harder to stand your ground with a a beloved adult or just an adult in general. But helping them learn the language and advocate, I think, are two really important ways to, to teach consent in a way that have nothing to do with sex. Yeah. Even sharing can be framed as consent, right? So yeah, absolutely. Kids master sharing in preschool. I mean, not in COVID, sadly. Or theoretically, they master (laughs) share. Right. (laughs) I think the pandemic sort of threw a wrench in this, but in theory, when they learn how to share and play cooperatively, really what they're also learning how to do is ask for and grant consent. And I think pulling that example in also helps both parents and kids understand that this concept isn't just about sex. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to the bucket of sex education because we've talked a lot about what it will cover. Or what it should cover. Or what it should cover. What won't it cover? So in my experience with organizations and schools, they will teach anatomy and physiology, right? They will teach about biological male and biological female body parts and physiology. They might cover topics like erections. In middle school, they often will not discuss things like the clitoris or pleasure 
for the experience of engaging in intimacy or self-intimacy. And I also think that they will not always be comfortable covering every part of the body, right? So different schools will choose exactly what they will cover. Will they cover the external female reproductive organs or will they just go straight to the uterus and the ovaries? Have you encountered that also, Cara? You know, it's exactly right that every school does this differently. So even when schools are trying to comply with federal and state standards, there's a huge amount of variability in what is actually taught. So a state standard might say that anatomy needs to be covered, but how many words are on that list and what words are on that list? That's not spelled out. This is complicated. What I wonder as someone who has had kids go through these curricula, both when I'm the teacher and for most of the time when I'm not the teacher, is how do you figure out precisely what they're learning? How do schools communicate to their parent body and guardian bodies what is going to be messaged? And do they have to communicate that? And also, how do you cross-check that information with your kid after they've had the class? So the classic the classic scenario beginning around fourth or fifth grade is that a school will run a health education curriculum of some sort over the course of a day or a week or a month. And they might do very short, you know, half an hour to 45 minute sections repeated over time. They may do one long course. You know, it's it's really looks different in every school. But they usually prompt the parents and tell the parents, hey, we're going to do this curriculum. Some schools get way far in front of it. They have a parent meeting. Mm -hmm. They encourage parents to participate in the meeting, ask questions. They want the parents to know what and how they are presenting the information they are presenting so that, frankly, so that parents can can then reinforce a lot of the information at home. That's really the goal, right? These are conversation starters in the classroom. Or the schools are afraid that parents are going to freak out. <laughs> <For> that too. <laughs> and so they want to give you a heads up before they, um, they do it. Now, in my experience, some schools are more specific and provide more detail. And other schools are less willing to go into the nitty gritty of what's going to be covered, partially because they elicit questions from the kids and they so they don't always know exactly how far down the road things are going to go. And, and don't confuse, if your school is not transparent, don't confuse that for your school being either overly conservative or overly liberal in how they're presenting the information. Because I've seen it go both ways. I've seen schools who disclose very little to the parent body who are teaching very little and they don't want pushback from the parents saying, I want my kid to learn more. And I've seen the opposite. Schools that teach a lot and go there way, go there. And those schools sometimes are not super transparent with their parent body because they don't want the parents saying, we don't want you going there. So I think... It's easy to jump to conclusions about why the school isn't transparent. The goal, of course, is for full transparency because that's what starts conversations. That allows you as the adult in this child's life to pick up the conversational thread and continue it in your home. And that conversational thread, by the way, might be 
hey, I know you had the class today. What did you learn about fill in the blank, right? But, and then your, your kid may say something that's totally wrong, factually wrong. And that is a wonderful moment to have a conversation with your kid, correcting the information, and then trying to drill down and figure out, hmm, did the person who taught this class get it this wrong? Or did the kids who are in the class hear it wrong? Because both are possible. And the kids do often, especially if it's the first time they're getting these nuggets of information, they're putting it through this filter. And it just, it's like a game of telephone in their brain. And when they articulate to you what they have heard, they get it 180 degrees off. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that concerns me about a lot of schools is that let's say they're not starting to teach growth education till fourth or fifth grade. So fourth and fifth grade, biological females are probably around nine, 10, 11. But we know, Cara, that girls are starting puberty. The average age is more like eight, right? And that's a second or third grader. So we have kids who may be two years into puberty who have not had any growth education in school. And with boys, similarly, you'll have a big chunk of boys who have already begun puberty and haven't received any education at school about their bodies. The number of kids that I have taught in the class about what's going to happen when you get your period for the first time, who have had their period for an extended period of time, I can't even count anymore. And you know what's amazing is that so often because this education gets kicked down the road, it gets, it's not prioritized in school. It gets delayed because it's an awkward topic. No one really wants to teach. It's hard to find the resources. So it gets kicked down the road. The kids become complicit in this narrative. And there are kids who I know are so far beyond what I am teaching who play the game of pretending like they don't know of raising their hands and saying what they're scared of when, you know, oh, I'm nervous that when I get my period for the first time, and this might be a kid whose mom has already reached out to me and said, her periods are so heavy. We're trying to manage it at home, but the kids are invested in the narrative that has been given to them, which is a narrative of this is, this is a third rail topic. And so we're going to introduce it to you in little baby steps. And when we introduce it to you, please kind of go along with the flow that this is new information to you. This well, is not, not only new that, information. They have been given the message that it's shameful, that That's we right. don't talk about it, right? By not talking about it, by delaying covering it, by using... I mean, I was in a sex ed meeting once and the educators were using the terms pleasure centers. And I was like, I'm sorry, those are penises and clitorises. Those are not quote unquote pleasure centers. And so, you know, this sense, these kids are given no choice unless they're living in homes that are really talking about this stuff. And, you know, with adults who are engaged in conversation, they're getting the message. This is shameful. Don't talk about it. There's something wrong with you because no one's bringing it up, even though all of these children are literally metamorphosizing. Is that a word? Yes. In front of <laughs> in front of everyone's eyes. So 
you know, if you take nothing else away from this episode, if your children are in a school that starts sex education or human growth and development in like fifth or sixth grade, this is a great opportunity to advocate for the school to begin teaching those things earlier. Maybe not kindergarten, maybe not second grade, but even moving it a year or two earlier will help a huge percentage of the kids in these classes who are well down the road by the time they're taught these things in school. And we have to mention the elephant in the room, which is pornography. So the data shows that the average age for first porn viewing in this country is, depending upon which study you're reading and what you believe, somewhere between 11 and 13 for males, not much later for females. And as those studies are old and the more and more I read about it, the more I am a true believer that it is closer to 11. Yeah. And it is not because these kids are going and looking for pornography. It's because pornography is looking for them and it finds them on the platforms where they are. And I am, as we're talking, I'm scrolling through these federal standards and there is no discussion of how pornography impacts sex education, certainly in middle school. The only mention of even media influence is by the end of eighth grade, the schools are required to have a discussion around how things like alcohol, other substances, friends, family, media, society, and culture influence your sexual decisions, which is very late compared to the reality of what our kids are seeing. And And we don't know yet. We don't have the research yet about exposure during and post, like in the pandemic era, right? Which we can only assume is younger because of how much time kids have spent. Exposure to porn, I can only imagine is younger based on how much time kids have spent online. Right. But this is why this whole issue becomes very sticky. So sex education moved to the school system and was sort of hoisted upon the school system. I think in large part because it was a more comfortable place for kids to get the information than in a lot of homes. This generationally, this was sort of how it evolved. But I mean, now sex education encompasses really, really big topics that are very heady and very hard to begin to discuss, particularly with kids. There are 20, 30 kids in a room and they all live in different situations and they all come from families with different values and they all have different particular sort of they have different personalities. They have different birth orders. They have different value systems. They have different. And how is a teacher supposed to stand up at the front of that class and talk about a really tricky subject like pornography with no judgment, but also with sort of this objective analytic approach that makes kids feel empowered and safe. It's hard. And so to the adults who are living in homes with kids who are getting sex education in school, whether your kid is in grade school, middle school, or high school, have the hard conversations. Do this for your child because even though there are requirements that these things happen in school, the requirements are a little too little, a little too late. And 
the school can never have the conversation exactly the way you want to. So you get to take what the school is sharing and you get to then reframe the narrative in a back and forth with your kid. And you guys can figure out what is and isn't sort of right in your mind or what does or doesn't fit in your mind, combining the facts with, again, with your value system, because that's a big piece about it. And I'll I'll add one other thing. There are definitely parents who do not want their kids to have sex education in school. And this has always been the case and it continues to be the case. For those parents, my advice is someone is going to teach your kids about sex. And if it's not in school, and if it's not you, then it's probably going to be the internet. And you really have no control over what your child is hearing and seeing and learning there. So if you opt out of a sex ed curriculum at school, and some schools give parents the choice, then you must opt into it at home. Or it's their friends who, you know, are giving them God knows what information. I mean, think about the words involved in understanding puberty and the human growth and development. Uterus, fallopian tube, ovaries. I mean, those are weird, big words that kids, I've had kids come to three puberty workshops and done human growth and development in school, and they're still not sure how to pronounce certain of these words. So the chances of the game of telephone going off the rails are extraordinarily high. And I want to, I want to add another point to folks who are feeling ambivalent about their kids receiving sex ed, which we have no judgment about that. We all come to this experience of raising kids and teaching them about their bodies from vastly different cultures, religions, geography, human experience. It's okay if it feels uncomfortable. However, the research tells us that teaching kids about their bodies helps keep them safe, helps them stay healthy so that they can talk about their body parts with knowledge, with healthcare providers. It also does not accelerate their sexual activity. It decelerates the age at which they are sexually active. So if you are worried, oh my God, if I teach my kid the difference between their vagina and their vulva, that means that kid is going to go start having sex next week. It's not true. That's not what the research tells us. That's right. I want to add on to that though, that the studies that are measuring sexual activity are often measuring vaginal intercourse. So oh, that's are, interesting. Right. So they are asking kids, have you had vaginal intercourse as the measure of whether or not a kid is sexually active? And one really important piece of a good sex ed curriculum is understanding that there are lots of different kinds of sex. Right. And so the data does show for sure that education prolongs sexual experimentation. It delays the risk of teenage pregnancy. It reduces the transmission of sexually transmitted infections. All of that is true. But the way they define sex is really limited. And I encourage the researchers out there to start redefining the terms a little bit. And 
you know, everyone's busy patting themselves on the back because the age of first sexual experience, uh, I guess we would call it vaginal intercourse, has gotten older and everyone's super excited. But the theory is that it's gotten older because kids are watching so much more porn and are delaying sex because they are gratifying themselves through porn. That's right. So we have to be careful about being excited about those ages. Now, obviously the pandemic has upended so much of this when kids were unable to be together in person and you know, to form that kind of intimacy and, and all of those issues. But I think there's always two sides to all of this research and all of these studies. I had an interesting experience with one of my kids who came home from a sex ed class. And I want to share it because I think it gets at that blurry line between what is sex ed, what's the responsibility of the teachers, what's considered respectful when learning stuff in school, what's an opportunity for conversation at home. So if you'll permit me, I'm going to share this experience. One of my kids came home from eighth grade sex ed, which was divided by gender, binary genders, male and female. And one of his friends asked the sex education teacher, how do you give a handjob? And his friend was sent out of the room for what was considered disrespectful behavior. And my kid came home and told me this and he was, you know, aghast and offended. I'm curious, Kara, how would you handle that? If your kid came home with that story, what would your next steps be? Let me just say that every single year that I have taught in classrooms, I have watched at least one kid put him or her or themselves out there and ask a question that is meant to make the educator blush. Having not been in that classroom, I don't know that that is the situation. It is very possible this kid actually wanted to know the answer to this. But we could spend 10 minutes running through the most amazing comments that have come out of the mouths of fourth graders and sixth graders. Except and for your daughter, because she was Except silent. Except for my daughter, because she was hiding under her desk. <laughs> but, you know, so there, there are always kids in the room who play that role. But there are also always kids in the room who have questions, often logistical questions, mm -hmm. that they just want answered. And I think that what I would suggest is for anyone who is on the teaching side, whether you're an educator, a school administrator, or a parent or adult who takes care of these kids, sending the kid into the classroom, I think setting some ground rules for the conversation is the way to have success around these conversations. So the ground rules when I teach are always, I will answer any question that is a legitimate, real question that you have, not a question meant to, to check me and make sure I really want to be here. But if you have a question, I will answer it. And sometimes I will answer it by saying, that is a really interesting question that I think you should ask the adult in your home. Because there are some questions that I don't think I should be answering, 
but I will let you know when it's a totally fair and legitimate question. And that is probably how I would have handled that because I think that kids are learning sexual behaviors from multiple media streams around them. And there are some kids who do just want to know the answer to how do I? And there is no teacher in America who is expected to stand up in front of a classroom and answer that for a child and then not have a lot of serious consequences. But pulling the kid out of the class and shaming the kid is a tricky response. That's where I land. You know, when my kid came home and asked that or told me the story, and there was definitely some entertainment value and some, you know, titillation that someone had the nerve to ask that question. But then I said to him, do you know what a hand job is? Do you know, you know, have you heard the word? Do you know what it is? I mean, it was an opportunity in a way I felt like he was bringing up the story because he wanted to talk about the question, not just how funny it was that it happened in class or how unfair it was that his friend was kicked out, but he was raising it in a way where he didn't have to turn to me and say, Hey mom, what is a hand job? But he could say, oh, here's what happened. And then maybe we would get into a conversation that he wanted to talk about. So I do think if your kids are coming home from their you know, sex ed classes or their human growth and development classes, and they tell you something or they bring something up or they share a story and your first reaction is like, oh, well, that was rude. Or, oh yeah, he deserved to get kicked out of the class. Or, oh, what is that teacher doing? stop and take a second and think about why else your kid might be bringing it up and what else they might be wanting to ask you, but not so comfortable in being direct about it. And for the educators who are listening, remember that the conversations that come up in these classes can be flags for other things that are happening for a kid. And those of us who have taught these courses have all experienced this, where someone might ask a question because they need help. Hmm. Someone might share some information because they're trying to sort of clue you into a dangerous situation or a worrisome situation that's happening under their roof. And that is a very valuable piece of running this curriculum in schools, is that there's an opportunity for the folks who educate in the health ed and sex ed vertical to be able to identify the kids who might have body image issues or might be victims of abuse or potentially victims of abuse. It is the educator's responsibility to be a mandatory reporter if there are concerns about the health and wellness of a child. But when it's not a concern and bright lights when it's just a little brewing worry. It's a little comment that a kid makes that raises a little flag. And that educator can have a conversation with the adults in that kid's home and say, hey, your kid asked about fill in the blank, which is just not that typical in this class. Is everything okay? Mm -hmm. That is a gift to that family. So there are so many reasons why having this curriculum in schools is additive, but it can't stand alone. Really, we need to have a curriculum at home 
that runs in parallel to the curriculum that we have in school. And your curriculum at home may be way ahead of the curriculum at school so that when your kid gets some of this teaching, it might be the most basic, most fundamental information because you've already been there, done that 12 times. And that's fine. But I will, I think we should end on the note that just like in so many other respects on this podcast, we talk about conversations that you have with the kid in your home that need to remain in your home. Sex and sex education is the biggest, shiniest example of that. That as you have these conversations with your kids, you do really need to remind them on a regular basis that these are conversations that are happening within your home because it feels comfortable and safe within your home. But it is not your child's job to be the human development education specialist for everyone on the bus or everyone in the homeroom class or everyone on the blacktop at recess. That's right. I think that drawing that boundary can be hard because we don't want to imply that there's anything shameful about what we're teaching our kids, but we also don't want to be responsible for educating the entire neighborhood. Well, I mean, you and I are, if people are listening to the Puberty Podcast, but other people don't want to be responsible for that. And if a kid comes to you and says, hey, what's sex? You know, they're there for a play date and they happen to know you talk about this stuff in your home. You can say to that kid, this is a really important topic and your parents maybe want to be the ones to tell you about it. So I want to get their permission to talk to you about it or you can feel free to ask your own folks, right? We don't want to spill the beans for other families without permission. I just want to end with one concept for people to think about. And that is, and this can be my practical puberty takeaway. Sometimes when our kids bring up issues or they come home from sex ed and our instinct is to say, oh, was it so awkward? Was it like so cringy? Did you just like want to die when you were listening to your teacher talk about it? One of the things that I want adults to do is to remove our assumptions and our baggage from these conversations and come at these issues with our kids in a more neutral way. So, hey, I know you were talking about female anatomy today. What was one new thing that you learned, right? That's a totally neutral way to approach it. Or, hey, I heard you learned about condoms today. That's pretty new. What was the most interesting thing that went on in class, right? And they may say, oh, so-and-so blew it up like a balloon and threw it across the room. Fine. Or they may tell you something scientific and factual. So I think we want to remove our discomfort as best we can when we try to have these conversations with our kids in partnership with whatever's going on in their schools. And I'll say my takeaway is something that we didn't even really touch, but we will in a separate episode, which is that part and parcel of talking about the biology and the physiology and the mechanics of all of this is talking about mutual respect and having each other's backs. Mm -hmm. And Every single one of these classes in school should have that through line in it. How to treat a partner with respect, how to protect someone you care about and make sure they are in a safe and healthy relationship, how to get help when you need help, how to get help for someone else when you think they need help. So if you're having trouble having the mechanical conversations, 
those are some topics that you can go to that are a little bit easier sometimes and just as important. Yeah, I mean, we'll do a whole episode on or probably several episodes on how to actually talk to our kids about sex in our homes with our value systems. But as a companion, I think you can never go wrong in reinforcing the importance of respect and care for other people. So that'll be a down the road episode, Car. I feel like we need to like build up our preparedness for that. For that it's episode. It's not one talk. It's it's not one talk. It's, it's not one episode. It's millions. So, Car, we will put some links to some of our favorite organizations, including Seekus, Amaze.org, and maybe even some Instagram accounts that we particularly love in the show notes for folks to check out. And if your child is starting the growth education path, enjoy it. Take advantage of the conversation starters, even if they're not. Enjoy it. Take advantage of the conversation <laughs> starters. <laughs> Bye, Cara. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at the Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.